We're going to be in the book of Ezra to start this morning, then we'll eventually make our way to Haggai, and then we'll eventually make our way to the New Testament. So if you want to, you want to kind of put your finger in two places, Ezra chapter 3 and Haggai chapter 2 is where we will be for a good chunk uh, this, this morning. Think about that song that we just sang, and think about how, how much, that, especially that end part, would have to be true for those, those Jews that have been in exile for 70 years that had, uh, had, had, to, had to, to leave their homes, see their, their children and their grandchildren be born uh, under the rule of the Babylonians away from their home, and how they would have to sing a, a song like that that says, you are good, even when the, the dark is holding on, and they would have to confess that, I believe, God, you are good, even though I cannot see it right now. And that tr- certainly would have been true of this group of people that have now made their way back from exile, going to Jerusalem as the, uh, the, the Persians have taken over and the decree has gone out for them to move forward, go back to Jerusalem, and begin to rebuild the temple. That is what we are going to be uh, looking at today, and and uh, out of these two books, you don't find a whole lot of stuff that gets quoted a whole lot, but I think the picture we're going to see today, what we're going to look at today, the more I have thought about it, the more I have studied it over the last few weeks, uh, the more I'm convinced that these are, um, it's one of the more gut-wrenching moments in the entire Old Testament. It is extraordinarily poignant uh, picture, and it's one that uh, I think we would do well if we spent a few minutes just looking at, and we'll get there uh, in, a few, in a few minutes. One of the things that I love about this church uh, is that we have some massively creative and talented people here. Uh, it, it blows my mind to be able to talk through and, and to talk with some people, and they, they show me some things that, that they have done, that perhaps they have painted, that they have uh, that they have uh, that they have baked and then uh, you know decorated and done some some fancy stuff things that they've done in their homes. We have some very skilled craftsmen that that are uh, a part of this church. Uh, it, it constantly makes me feel inadequate to be around just about all of you because I have none of those skills. I'm not a great craftsman. I am certainly not an artist. I will mess up a stick figure. It, I can't draw anything at all. I can't paint anything. Like Even if I can manage to get it, the picture in my head, to go from my head and through my fingers onto the, onto the paper... Like, I don't even think I could do one of those classes, you know, like, like Jordan teaches where, where she's like, here, do this exactly, and you'll be fine. I don't think I could do that one either. I think it would all look uh, terrible. But we have some very creative people here, which just, honestly, I marvel at constantly. Um, and part of the reason why I marvel at it is because somewhere along the line in the last decade or so, creativity has been completely killed, and it was killed by Pinterest. I don't know how many of you people are like Pinterest people, but I'm convinced there's 10 people in the world that are super creative and everybody else just copies them on Pinterest. Uh, somewhere, like, th- that has to be how that, that works because everybody tries to copy uh, everything. Uh, and then what happens is that you get this very, very poor representation of what the uh, original artist uh, what the original artist had tried to do. I, I, I got a couple of pictures here that we can, we can go through here. These are supposed to be rubber ducky cupcakes, but I'm convinced the second picture is from Batman Returns. I know most of you guys, that's not your, your, uh, your generation, but that's what those look like. That one, I think that's a cupcake, 
And I think the one on the right is like the cupcake that you get uh, maybe at Dollywood. I'm not sure. But that, that, I, there's a few more here that I think are, that are pretty good. <laughs> that just, I think, is hilarious. I'm not sure how they did that or what they were doing. The minion, he's looking pretty rough. Although, to be honest, that one, that one is better than most of the others that, that we've seen up here. And then this next one, I think, is the last one. That's my favorite. Poor Ariel. But you can still tell it's Ariel, which I think is probably still better than what I would have done. And the flower's not bad up there. Uh, but there's, there's Pinterest spells like this all over the Internet, and they're pretty funny. I, honestly, I, I talked to Emily last night, and I said, hey, do you have any pictures of Pinterest fails that you have that I could put up here? Because it would be great for, you know, just a, a personal touch to it. And she said, no, everything I do turns out perfect. We don't have any pictures like that. It's like, all right, fine, be that way. Um, but she said she didn't have any, so that's just the way it goes. Um, the, the whole premise of this, there's even a show on Netflix called Nailed It that is built off of this premise, that you can't just replicate the original artwork that is done by these people. And the idea is that the picture looks amazing, but the execution of that task and the final results are very, very poor imitations of what the original looked like. You might be able to, to, to compare the two and bring them together if you squint just the right way, uh, but honestly, what you can pull off just isn't the same as what the experts can pull off. And this general idea will be the same thing that we, the writer of Ezra will be sharing with us as construction begins on the temple. But before we get there, we've got some work to do to kind of set the stage for what we'll get to at the end of the message this morning. And so I want to read uh, where we left off last week, which is the end of Ezra chapter 2, verse 70, and then we'll pick up from there. So Ezra chapter 2, verse 70. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So what has happened here is we get to the end of chapter 2, and we have the picture of everyone coming back to Jerusalem, back to Judah. And what they have said is, or the, the way this wraps up at the end of chapter 2 is, here's all these people that are back. They're there, and they've kind of set up shop in either Jerusalem or the surrounding kind of suburbs and areas around Jerusalem. But what they've come back to is a shell of what had, they had left 70 years ago. Now it's rubble, it's overgrown with weeds, it's covered in dust. The trek to make it back to Jerusalem uh, from all the various places that they lived when they were in captivity would have taken, give or take, about four months is the best guess that people have. So when they returned, they would have been greeted with a pile of, of rubble and completely, ex and, and, and completely exposed to any harm that, that anyone would want to do to them which we'll see next week was plenty of people that would like to do uh, harm to them. So most decided to set up shop in Jerusalem, the rest around Jerusalem, and, and they, they live in these towns. I don't know how many of you guys go on long vacations or drive, uh, really, go on a really long drive, but what do you want to do as soon as you get to the place? So let's say you're going to the beach, let's say you're going somewhere down there in Florida, you've got an 8, 10, 12, 14-hour drive, you get there, and what do you want to do? The kids want to go play. The kids want to go get in a pool. The kids want to run around. The kids want to be crazy. But what do the parents want to do? They want to find a bed, and they want to stretch out, and they want to take a nap because the trip is exhausting. They want to be able to, 
They want to be able to, to, to get away from the, the confines of the minivan that you've been in and then just stretch out and relax just for a few minutes and preferably get away from the kids that have been yipping in your ear for the last couple of hours wanting to know if you're there yet. Like you just want to get away and stretch out. Now just imagine if you were part of a four-month caravan where you were trying to do this. Where you would have to set up shop every night in a, in, a, in a makeshift tent, get up the next day, fix yourself some breakfast, and then pack the tent away, and then go another 15 miles down the road, then set up another tent, and you just keep doing this over and over and over again for four straight months. What would you want whenever you finally got to Jerusalem? I'll tell you what I would want. I want a house, and I want a bed. That's what I would want. And that would be where I would be headed as soon as I got to Jerusalem. I would say, let me make my house. Let me get this going. And you would think that would be the next thing that Ezra would tell us about. So they all made it to Jerusalem. They all made it to their towns. And they spent the next six months building homes and establishing that this is their home. Now, there's no doubt they would have gotten to work on their houses. And they had a couple of weeks where they could have, they get a chance to put something together. But if you look in chapter 3, Ezra tells you what is really important to all of those that came back. So Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came, now this is not seven months, seven months after coming back. This is seven months post, uh, or seven, the seventh month just of the year is kind of what this is talking about. And the children of Israel were in the towns. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built, an, they built the altar of the, God, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, so they're worried about people coming to attack them. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So what happens whenever they finally get there? Basically what happens is Zerubbabel says, go to your towns, go to the place where you're going to have your homes, you've got a couple of weeks, put up your tents, the same ones you've been sleeping in every night, establish yourself a minimal little homestead, go to that place, and then I'll see you back in Jerusalem in a couple of weeks. And why were they summoned back to Jerusalem? Why did they need to come back to Jerusalem? Because they needed to have church. Because they needed to gather together to worship. I think this is a remarkable thing. When you've been on this kind of journey, all you want is to be home again. All you want is to establish a place that is safe, that is comfortable, a, safe, a place where you can go and rest your head and know, I am home. Whenever we move, when we've moved in the past, we come into a new house, my general instinct is to unpack every box as fast as you can. 
it's hard for me to sit down and rest until everything is unpacked and in its proper place. Because I need to know that that place feels like home. But the instinct of these people is that nothing will stop them from gathering together to worship together. They need to be together because they need to make an offering at the altar of God. After all, that's the whole reason that they're going back to Jerusalem in the first place. Don't miss this. They're not going back just because of, you know, it's homecoming. They're not going back just because they feel like, you know what, that is a great place. I really like that little plot of land where grandma had her, had her house. I'd like to have that back. That's not what they're going back for. They're going back to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was, that's where the altar was, and they needed to make a sacrifice. They needed to worship together, and that is what they were going to do. Friends, we have to let this be an example to us. Now, I realize that COVID has wrecked much of what we all know as a routine, and church is no exception to that especially whenever it comes to being around others and gathered with others in the same place. I know many have not been able to come for months, and you're watching online at home uh, now due to personal health concerns or concerns for those that you uh, live with or that you're around. I get that. I truly do. So don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. I'm, I'm not saying that everybody needs to be here right now. But one of the chief markers of God's people is the fierce determination to worship him. And not just the fierce determination to worship him, but the fierce determination to worship him together. This has been a mark of God's people all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, and it has been given to us as a mark for us now that we would worship him together. You would think in light of the circumstances that they found themselves in here with, with, uh, in, in Ezra that, and coming back from exile that perhaps a priest or even God himself uh, might have made an allowance for this time of rebuilding, might have made an allowance uh, and said, you know what, there's not even a temple here. You guys just have a family worship service together. Y'all do your own thing. And then once we get the temple going in a couple of years, we'll resume regular worship together. But that is not what happened. God's presence in the Old Testament is tied directly to the tabernacle in Exodus. And then once the temple is built by Solomon, his presence is tied to the temple. They needed to be at the temple. They needed to be at that altar because that is where they would find God. And they could not be deterred from that. Now today is different. We'll look at that here in just a minute. Today is a little bit different. We don't have to gather or gather here in order to experience God's presence. We don't. We don't have to do that. There's no altar here for you to sacrifice to kill a goat. There's no, there's no holy of holies and curtain behind me. I do not intercede for you on behalf of you because I am not your priest. The book of Hebrews lays all of that out and says that Jesus intercedes for us on our behalf because he is our high priest. So it is different. It is not the same thing. And we know as God's people that the Holy Spirit indwells each one of us. His presence is within us, and then we are dwelt, we are dwelt by the Spirit. But part of what the Spirit is doing is that He is knitting us together 
as a people. Listen to how Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. So we're talking about the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra and the structure going up and the altar that is there. And what Paul says is, you are just like that structure that is going up. Same thing. Theirs is made of brick and mortar and wood and stones. You are made of the people of God. And then he says in verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, in the New Testament, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Because one brick does not make a temple. One brick does not make a house. And part of what the temple or part of what the Holy Spirit is doing, yes, he indwells us individually. But part of the work of the Spirit is that He indwells us individually so that I can then be connected to you and you can then be connected to me and then you can be connected to your neighbor and then together we are a spiritual house and a house in which God dwells in His people. So the picture that we have is the Old Testament temple worked this way and the the mirror to that is then how it works in the church, not in the church building but in the church, us collectively. That is the picture that the the Old Testament gives and the New Testament fleshes out. We'll talk even more about that here in just a few minutes. It is a huge theme in the New Testament. And so I say all that to say we cannot treat our time together as a church as optional or a preference. As Christians, it is utterly essential to our faith working out in the way it is designed to work that we be together. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not being Mr. Legalistic saying that God doesn't love you if you don't check that Sunday morning church box. I am not saying that at all. But I am saying you are not going to understand your Christian faith. You are not going to grow. You are not going to understand how your faith works. And you are not going to understand what your task is in this life if gathering with one another is not an absolute essential in your life. We must make our corporate worship carry the same weight and the same same importance to us today as it did to them. Not because you need to show up here in order to experience the presence of God, but because you show up here and we are knit together and God indwells that. That is an amazing promise. We do not have to go to a place where a cloud comes down. We gather together and he is within us. And then he is in our midst. If you cannot be here and you are stuck online, please hear me and hear my heart. I sympathize with you. And my assumption is that you long to be here, but you cannot out of caution and and safety for your loved ones. Which is why I'm super thankful that I can stick a phone up here and that we can be together as it allows us to be in the moment. Please do not feel pressured by what I am saying, like, oh, we've got to get back. The preacher's calling us out. That is not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that this has to be temporary. And that what God calls us to is to be together. Our 
proper response is that we should long for the day when we will be together now. And then what we'll see here in a few minutes is that day when we will be together for eternity. Sunday morning gatherings are a Saturday night decision. And I want you here because you matter to us. And I sure hope that you want to be here because we matter to you. Not because the music is great, not because the preaching is anything fantastic, but because of what the Spirit is doing when you are here, even when you don't realize it. I could keep going, and this could be the sermon for the morning, but I'm going to hop off my, my soapbox here. But this is what God has called us to. He's called us to be with one another. And he says he will indwell that. The, uh, the other part of this thing is the timing of this worship that I find amazing. Whenever you read this in Ezra chapter 3, they're coming together to make offerings, yes, but they're also coming together, it tells us uh, in chapter 3 here, to mark the beginning of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, you've probably heard it called both of those. Today, this is celebrated by the Jewish people, and they'll make these kind of makeshift tents, or these makeshift kind of like shanty shacks that they will stay in, and they'll sleep outside under the stars. And the whole point in the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is that they recount what it would have been like for the nation of Israel as they wandered in the desert after they left Egypt in the Exodus. And they recount God's faithfulness even in their desert wanderings. That's what the Feast of Booths is. That's what, that's what they are celebrating. Now, can you imagine how poignant and poetic it would be as you have just come back on a four-month journey, sleeping in a tent, out in the desert, underneath the stars, and now you are going to celebrate the holiday. You're going to celebrate a feast that says God was faithful to our people then, whenever they were sleeping under the stars with a tent as their home, and he is faithful to us now whenever there is a tent as our home and we are sleeping under the stars. They didn't have to build a tent to kind of mock and, 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 and create like this mock circumstance. They were living it out. I think it's a beautiful picture. And I can imagine how much it must have meant to them to be able to say that even when the night is holding on, even whenever the hardest things were before us, even when our forefathers were wandering in the desert, God was with them. And even now, as we sit here lying among the rubble with the city walls torn down, exposed to our enemies, God is with us now. What a beautiful, beautiful way to worship. As they go throughout this festival and as they lay this stuff out, they carry out their, they carry out their uh, sacrifices and they do what God has called them to do because they believe that he is good and that he is with them. And if you keep reading in uh, verse 7, we see that, uh, that it moves ahead a little bit in the, uh, in the narrative. There's a couple times where this happens where all of a sudden it's like, wow, we lost like three or four years here. If you read in verse 7, it, you see that uh, we moved to year two of the building project, and now the foundation, verse 6, it says the foundation wasn't there. And then in verse 7, it says, in year two, the foundation of the temple had been laid. It was a slow project. It probably took them uh, seven months just to get their first shipment of wood in to begin constructing some of these things. But the foundation is laid. 
And it's time to have the first glimpse of what it's going to look like in this new temple. The structure isn't there, but there's enough to get an idea of what it's going to look like. And here's the worship service that happens. It's an incredible scene. Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph and the sim- with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the dire- directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And they sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. I have replayed this scene in my head over and over and over again in the last couple of weeks. Just close my eyes and imagine what it would have been like to be there in this place. And the more I meditate on it, the more I close my eyes and picture it, the more heartbreaking it becomes. Can you just close your eyes and picture this? It's the building dedication. They're there ready to make kind of the the ribbon cutting. Look at this amazing thing that we've done. What a celebration. Zerubbabel is there to kind of lay it out and say, wow, this is so good. I'm so excited. They cut the ribbon. They blow the trumpets. The priests are there in all their royal, their, their, their priestly garb. It's very ceremonial. They've got all this going on. They unroll the scroll and they read from the scroll and they sing together. All these things happen. What should be the best moment of these people's lives, considering all they've gone through to get to this point, and for some it was the best moment of their lives, and they shouted with joy, and they were so excited, and they were high-fiving, and they were hugging, and they were like, this is amazing, this is so good. And as they're in the midst of that hugging and that high-fiving and that celebrating, they look around and they see the older people in the congregation and they're, they're not just like a tear rolling down their cheek. They're weeping audibly. Just, you know, they, like you can't even get your breath. They're weeping because of, of what they, they are watching and what they are seeing. And they are not weeping for joy. This is not a joyful cry. They are lamenting. They are wailing. You can't even tell the difference between the shouts of joy and the weeping and the wailing that is happening. It's a little chaotic. It's a little confusing. And you wonder, what in the world is going on? Why are these people crying? Are they just like, what is the deal? Why would they do this? Why isn't this exciting? They've worked for two years to this after a four-month journey just to get here. It would have to be so hard to be in that place. Why would they not be happy and excited? Well, to be honest, Ezra doesn't tell us. We're left to guess just a little bit about what might be going on. But if you turn to Haggai chapter 2, we get a little bit of a picture of that. So Haggai chapter 2, go to a different part of the Old Testament there. Haggai is a prophet. He's addressing what is happening in this post-exilic period. He's addressing what is going on. And he gives us a little more insight as to what is happening here in Haggai chapter 2, in verse 1. Here's what he says. 
In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by, came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to, to, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? Now, we're not told this is happening exactly in conjunction with what we just read in Ezra, but it's probably pretty close. And you get the sense that this was the overwhelming understanding of what was happening in Israel at this time. The young among them were so excited about the work they were doing, about being back home, about starting something new, about being pioneers going back. They were seeing the work that was completed. They knew how hard it was. They knew they were making progress. They knew they were doing what God had called them to do. But the others, they see what this temple is going to look like and they weep because it does not compare to Solomon's temple. It doesn't look anything like it. Solomon's temple arrayed in its gold and its silver, its fine woodworking, its cedar carvings. The rubble is still just at their feet around them. And I can just imagine they see the foundation and then they look over at the rubble that's over there and they, they look at it and they say, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what I thought we were doing. I thought we were going to replicate that thing, but I see the foundation and I see where this is going and this is terrible. And they lament and they weep and they are sad and they are, they are broken down. It talks about the old men. These are the men that were probably six or seven years old that were running around in the temple courtyard or just outside the temple that, that for them that was all that they knew before they were taken away into exile. It was probably talked about in exile by parents and by grandparents about the splendor of Solomon's temple and how they wished they could go back and worship at that temple one more time. And then whenever the opportunity comes around, they say, I've heard grandma talk about this. I'm going to go build this for her in her honor. And then they get there and they see it being built and they're like, this is nothing like what grandma had talked about. This is nowhere near as good. And their heart is broken by it. They are broken by it. This temple would be plain, it would be boring, it would be simple. It wouldn't have the skilled craftsmen that Solomon was able to employ to work on the detail. It didn't have the elaborate gold and the finest linens. This wasn't what they had remembered. And this is not what they had, had imagined they were going back to rebuild. And all they could do is weep for what they had lost. It is a heartbreaking scene can imagine the sense of loss and disappointment, the sense of never regaining what was once theirs, the sense of regret that comes with knowing it was their sin and their people's sin that had led to this moment, that had led to this exile, that had led to the temple's destruction. Maybe you can identify with that this morning, a deep sense of loss as a result of sin. The regret that comes with that. The longing for things to be as they were or even more for things to be as they are supposed to be. I can relate to that. It's a heart-wrenching, tangible loss. 
And in that moment, they feel it so strongly. And they wept for what had been, and they wept for what would never be again. But then Haggai has something to say to these people while they weep. He tells them, all is not lost. Look in verse 4. Haggai says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the, the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of the house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So God comes to his people through Haggai and he says, weep not. I'll take care of the temple. That's on me to handle. I got that part covered. The gold is mine. The silver is mine. We don't need gold and silver in this place. You don't need to weep because you have no access to it. It's mine. I've got all the access that I need. I'll see that it is done. And it was. We'll see that next week. God takes care of the material needs to see the temple restored. This temple will become the hub for worship and for sacrifice again for the Jewish people. When you move to the New Testament, this is the temple we read about in Jesus' ministry. It's the one he clears out with whips. It's the temple that Herod is restoring and had just restored right before Jesus' ministry begins. Verse 9 makes an interesting claim, though says that the latter glory of the temple will be greater than the former. The new temple will supersede Solomon's temple. And in some ways, that is true. It's almost triple the size of Solomon's temple uh, whenever you compare like square footage and kind of the way things are laid out. It's, it's far, far bigger. But it never gains the ornate details of Solomon's temple. And it doesn't have the... Uh, all, all, all the, the grandeur that Solomon's temple had with all of its, its, its details and its gold and everything that's in there. It gets gold and it gets covered in all that, but it's not quite the same. On top of that, the Holy of Holies in this temple is absent some things, notably the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments in it. It doesn't have that. It's empty. It's not in there. So yes, this prophecy is fulfilled. But as often happens with biblical prophecy, there are multiple layers that are being told here by Haggai. Because there is an even greater sense in which the new temple's glory will be even greater than the old. You see, the old temple had the presence of God that came and dwelled among his people, would come in a cloud and would dwell among his people. And it was that that gave the temple its glory, not the silver and the gold, 
This new temple, though, would never have the presence of God show up quite the same way. There's no recorded instance of his presence coming and dwelling in a cloud and a column of smoke the same way that we see with the, with the, the New Testament. There's no glory cloud filling the temple so that it overwhelms the priests, which is what we see whenever Solomon's temple is dedicated. So we have to wonder, what is it that Haggai means whenever he says the glory of the temple, of this temple, will supersede that of the original? You see, while God doesn't descend in a glory cloud, he did descend in a different way to this temple. In the second chapter of John, you see Jesus clearing out the temple, and he's calling out the Jews for their hypocrisy. And he's prof- and, and for, for their hypocrisy, for the profaning of the temple, for their selling of goods in the, ta- in the temple. He's turning over tables. He's cracking whips. He's clearing out this temple. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. They're talking about the renovation that Herod has done. And will you raise it up in three days? And then John tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead. And his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus shows up in the temple, the presence of God in bodily form, not in a cloud, in the temple. And he redefines for us what we should be looking for. He redefines what it means for God to dwell with his people. And he says, tear it down. It doesn't serve any purpose anyway. And this temple would be torn down just a few years after Jesus' ministry in A.D. 70 by the Romans. But here Jesus says, tear it down and I'll build it back again. But we know, as John tells us, Jesus wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about himself. And he was talking about himself because he was the one that was accomplishing the temple's job to have God dwell with his people. God himself with us. So yes, the latter temple did surpass the first temple because the latter temple wasn't just talking about a building that housed God's presence. It was talking about God himself in human form, dwelling with man. Kill him, and he rises again. And then he sends his spirit to do what? Well, we read that in Ephesians chapter 2, to indwell us and then to knit us together that his glory may dwell among us. It's a beautiful picture. Do you see the thread of the tabernacle to the temple, to the second temple, to Jesus, to the church? It's just woven throughout that. This is what I mean whenever I tell you that the first question you should be asking when you read the Bible is not, what does this Bible say about me? How does it make me feel? How does it answer questions about me? But the first thing you should be reading or asking when you read your Bible is, what does this teach me about God and what he's doing? And what he's telling us is that he's been working this plan all the way from the beginning. And he will carry it out all the way to the end. Revelation chapter 21, last chapter of the Bible, verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, not the one that they are there to rebuild in Ezra and Nehemiah, but a new Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God, or out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, as Christians, that is the day we are marching to. That is the day we wake up and we long for. The day when we will see him. When we will be fully known and we will be fully covered by Christ, fully covered by his blood, and we will be together, you and I together, not being built up anymore, but now established in the new Jerusalem, not needing a temple in this place because God dwells with us. We don't need something to, to keep us separate, but we are there with him. Well, it gives me cold chills just to think about it. It, 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 it wrecks my heart. And we will not look to the old temple. We will not look to the Solomon's temple. We will not look to Herod's temple. We will not even look back to the church and weep because it fails in glory. We will look to, to, to God and we will, it says we will weep, but the next verse says that he will wipe away every tear. And our hearts will be filled with joy as we worship before him in the new Jerusalem. No temple needed. No intercession needed any longer. Because Christ has done the work. And once he has made the sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, it is a, is a sacrifice made once for all. That's why he says it is finished on the cross. The temple isn't needed because we dwell with God. God dwells with man. This is our future as Christians. This is our future as those who are found in Christ. No longer do we have to weep over what was and what we have lost. But instead, our hearts, our hearts burst with joy over what we have gained. This is what awaits us. This is what awaits those believers that have gone before us. And we will do this together. If we are in Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess that our, our imagination is too small. Our ability to comprehend the grace and your majesty that is on display throughout the Old Testament and the New and what will be on display in that day as the new city comes down. We can't comprehend it. But even as we can't comprehend it, God, we long for that day. We long for that day where you are not sanctifying us, but you have glorified us. Where we no longer struggle with sin. But instead, we cast our crowns before you and we proclaim that you are worthy. Father, teach us to long for that day 
Father, we repent of, 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 of longing for such temporary things here. Father, teach us to long for the eternal. And to build our lives around that day. When we will be shoulder to shoulder with those in this room who are in Christ. When we will stand with Peter and with Paul. When we will stand with Abraham and with Moses. We will proclaim that you are good and you are worthy. And that Christ's blood is sufficient for us all. In Christ's name we pray.